Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. And I'm going to the World Parkinson Congress. Who's coming with me? Come on, everybody. This is the 10th and final preview episode of WPC 2019, the official podcast for the 5th World Parkinson Congress. The event is being held June 4th through the 7th, 2019 in Kyoto, Japan. This podcast is created in collaboration with the World Parkinson Coalition and my other podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Each episode, we preview guests and topics that are going to be featured at the WPC. Today, we'll talk about personalized medicine for people with Parkinson's and get lots of last-minute advice on how to make the most of your time at the WPC. Etienne Hirsch is director of the French National Institute for Neuroscience, Neurology, and Psychiatry. He's a board member and chair for the Basic Science Program Committee for this year's World Parkinson Congress. Dr. Hirsch has been studying Parkinson's for over 30 years. He's the author of more than 200 peer-reviewed articles, and much of that work is understanding the cause of neuronal degeneration in PD. So I started our discussion by asking him, of all the observations he's made about Parkinson's, which have been the most clarifying for him? Uh, I would say that uh, I have, in fact, two aspects in which I am uh, uh, really uh, interested. One is the role of neuroinflammation. Uh, in, at the beginning, when we worked on the mechanism of neuronal degeneration, uh, most of the people were not interested in neuroinflammation, and some people were even laughing, saying that uh, neuroinflammation is a consequence of neuronal degeneration. And now we know that, uh, in fact, the neuroinflammatory processes are not just a consequence of neuronal degeneration. Uh, These uh, events really participate to the cascade of events leading to degeneration. Okay, it's, it's me, Larry. Let me just jump in here before we get to the second observation from Dr. Hirsch. If you didn't catch that, for many years, he and his colleagues were laughed at for believing inflammation triggers a series of events that leads to the death of our dopamine-producing brain cells. Critics thought the inflammation was a consequence of the degeneration. Dr. Hirsch and his colleagues have now proven the critics wrong. Now for his second clarifying observation. In the past, uh, most of the people believed that uh, the uh, immune cells could not penetrate into the brain, but this is not true. We have activated microglial cells in the brain of uh, people suffering from uh, the disease, and we have even lymphocytes, which are immune cells that go from the blood circulation 
into the brain parenchyma. And because of that, what can we do? Like what, 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 what's the opportunity? Uh, we know now, at least in uh, experimental models in mice, if you remove the CD4 lymphocytes, you protect the dopaminergic neurons against degeneration induced by Parkinsonian toxins. So uh, this is really the proof that at least some of these uh, CD4 lymphocytes play a deleterious role. So the next question is, uh, what is triggering the neuroinflammation. And we have uh, two uh, major hypotheses. One is that the suffering neurons are secreting signal uh, that will activate the brain macrophages and this ultimately will uh, allow the lymphocytes to penetrate into the brain and the combination of the microglial cells and some T lymphocytes will in fact uh, kill the dopaminergic neurons. The second hypothesis is related to uh, alpha-synuclein. Uh, you know alpha-synuclein is uh, accumulating in the brain of the, the, the patients. And uh, it is believed that some misfolded form of uh, alpha-synuclein are in fact uh, recognized as a foreign protein. And this in fact triggers a sort of uh, autoimmune reaction. So it is uh, believed that this misfolded uh, alpha-synuclein, in fact, uh, will trigger the neuroinflammatory processes. You talk about inflammation, and I'm thinking, let's just pop a couple of Advil. We should be all right. <laughs> yeah, you cannot use uh, uh, the classical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, especially in elderly people, because this is causing uh, very uh, adverse uh, side effects, for instance, uh, stomach uh, bleeding, and uh, this is a, a, a really uh, major, major issue in elderly people. Uh, so, so I'm guessing that this is uh, uh, th this idea of uh, neuronal vulnerability, which is one of your topics at WPC. This is all related to that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a very important concept in Parkinson's disease. What will be discussed is uh, why some cells degenerate in Parkinson's disease and some do not degenerate. Dr. Hirsch will present a workshop with three other doctors at 1.30 on day one. They're diving deep into a couple of topics. Dr. Ernest Arenas from Sweden will be discussing developmental genes that are present in dopamine-generating neurons that degenerate. If we take the example of the dopaminergic neurons, the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra uh, degenerate, but in the adjacent ventral tegmental area, only 50% of the cell degenerate. And a little bit more dorsally in the, in the central gray substance, the dopaminergic neurons do not degenerate at all. So you have this concept of selective vulnerability, and I think that uh, it is something which is uh, uh, interesting because it might suggest that Parkinson's disease might even start uh, uh, at the very beginning of life. Dr. Salzer from New York will discuss the role of cellular threshold. And he has made some uh, 
very uh, new uh, studies on the role of alpha-synuclein in the uh, uh, induction of the neuroinflammatory processes. Dr. DJ Surmeyer, also of the U.S., will discuss the role of calcium in dopaminergic neurons. And he has an ongoing uh, clinical trial, and uh, I hope that uh, he will have the results for the WPC meeting. Oh, that'd be exciting. Yes, we, we all cross our fingers and hope that uh, he will be able to uh, share his result. It's not sure yet. And uh, if he shares his result, we hope that uh, the, the, the trial will be positive. You said something that caught my ear. Dopamine cells, the dopamine producing cells that, uh, that are dying, focused in that substantia niagara. There's a theory that it could be something we're born with which means that so at some point, you know, finding a biomarker should be possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you, you have some genes which are uh, uh, genes which are uh, uh, expressed during the development of the dopaminergic neurons that uh, uh, are involved or might be involved in the regulation of the uh, degenerative process and the susceptibility of dopaminergic neurons. So as folks listening can tell, uh, I'm trying to wrap my brains around all the great knowledge that you have. And, uh, and I'm sure that there's going to be a ton of information at the WPC in the session that you're leading, uh, but it is geared to more scientific uh, thinking folks. It's, it's going to be high level, is my understanding. Yes, in the, uh, for the basic science uh, program of WPC, we have selected uh, uh, sessions, the uh, ASA work workshops or uh, 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 parallel sessions, which are uh, high level, uh, high scientific session levels. However, what is just fantastic and exciting with WPC is that you have plenary sessions in which basic science it's, is also presented, but it is accessible to everybody. It is accessible to uh, caregivers. It is accessible to uh, the people with uh, Parkinson. It is uh, accessible to uh, uh, clinicians. So it's. Uh, I think that's uh, really the beauty of this uh, meeting. I do too. You have a plenary session called "Are We Moving Towards Personalized Medicine." Yes, I think that uh, it is the most uh, uh, important challenge these days uh, for Parkinson's disease. By the way, I should not say Parkinson's disease. I should say Parkinson's diseases with an S because uh, 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 the concept is that uh, we might have different diseases. We know that uh, uh, about 10% of the uh, uh, cases uh, are inherited cases, uh, but the genes which are mutated are different. And for the other cases, for the sporadic cases, we don't know the etiology. But uh, uh, the etiology might be different uh, in subgroup of patients. So the concept is that we have not just a single disease, but we have different diseases. And uh, this is something which is uh, uh, very uh, important, because if this is true, we might have different form of diseases, and therefore the treatment should be adapted 
to uh, a, a specific patient population. I have a theory that I, I put out there that Parkinson's today is kind of like cancer in the 70s and 80s, where if you got diagnosed with cancer, it was just cancer. And now they've got 800 different versions of cancer. You got lung cancer, breast cancer, eye cancer, throat cancer. And in 20 years from now, that, that'll be Parkinson's. There'll be the differentiations of the different kinds of Parkinson's you may have. Does that ring true to you? Absolutely. It's uh, exactly what uh, we, we now believe. And uh, uh, for, uh, for cancer, uh, we can take some tumor cells, use the omics technique to see the, how the genes are expressed, how the proteins are expressed in the cancer cells, and then have a treatment which is adapted to the type of disease. Unfortunately, for Parkinson's disease, uh, it is not possible to get some cells from the brain. We cannot uh, perform biopsy. So it's a little bit more complex. And our hope is that either by taking cells from the periphery and developing uh, iPS cells, we might have this type of cells or... There are some groups that are performing deep brain stimulation and remove the remaining tissue on the electrode. So when they are, they have the guide, they are, they implant the electrode, they are testing the best position and they remove, in fact, the guide and the, 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 the first electrode. And there is always a little bit of tissue that is remaining on this surgical instrument. So you are able to have this, uh, this tissue. And this is a source of uh, really uh, outstanding material because it might allow really to uh, identify for very specific patients the uh, molecular and cellular changes in the brain to try to develop personalized medicine. So I fully agree with your hypothesis, and uh, many people are working on it. That's exciting. That is really exciting. I mean, we all hear that you, know, you, you meet one person with PD, you've met one person with PD. Uh, is that just symptomatically, or is that also, uh, you know, when you look beyond the symptoms, it, it looks different inside the brain? Uh, it, it looks different inside the brain. It looks different because uh, you have not always the same stage of the disease. Uh, you have neuronal loss in some brain regions, but not in other brain regions. Uh, I have, uh, in the past, I have done a lot of studies on the uh, uh, post-mortem material. And uh, for instance, we have studied some cholinergic neurons, and uh, uh, especially in the brainstem, in a nucleus which is called the pedunculopontin nucleus, and we were able to show that in patients with gait and balance disorders, the cholinergic neurons in the pedunculopontin nucleus degenerate, while in the patient without a gait and balance disorder, the neurons are preserved. So absolutely, you have different manifestation in the disease, uh, in the brain of the patients, and this might be related to the symptoms. 
So if we want to have personalized medicine, for instance, uh, to, 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 to correct the uh, gait and balance disorders, we have to know the changes in the brain. And these are things we are starting to understand. Well, as a, as a guy who has Parkinson's, that's really exciting to hear. So uh, I'm, I'm really happy uh, that uh, you're dedicating uh, your work to that. And uh, I look forward to, to hearing more in Kyoto. This is going to be exciting to see you and meet you uh, in person there. Yes, it will be very nice to discuss together and uh, to share uh, the experience of uh, all the basic scientists and uh, the, the, the people living with Parkinson. Uh, Kyoto is also a, a wonderful city. I was lucky enough to uh, 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 be in Kyoto for uh, several trips. Uh, Japan is a wonderful uh, country with uh, very nice people. It's probably one of the best uh, cities in Japan to visit the, the temples. And uh, the food is uh, just outstanding. Uh, you hear uh, from my accent, I am a French guy. So we are, uh, we like very good cuisine. And uh, uh, in Kyoto, there are uh, many uh, Michelin star restaurants uh, which uh, have this label. And uh, I hope that the attendees of the meeting will enjoy the food in Kyoto also. I want to hang with you. You're going to go to the good places. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> so. So of the food in Kyoto, uh, what's your, what, what are you craving the most right now? It's uh, they have fantastic fish. The fish is uh, just fantastic, and uh, the the Kobe beef also. Oh, Kobe beef, yeah. it's uh, really the, the the for me the best beef in the in the world. So you should have Kobe beef, and uh, the pastries are uh, very good. With uh, the Japanese uh, chef are uh, very good for, also for the pastries. It's. Uh, Generally, the, the, the Japanese don't eat so much pastries, but when you go in the very, very good restaurant, you have fantastic pastries. Of course, uh, sake is oh, yeah. very Kung good Pao. to drink also. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, and coming from a Frenchman, uh, saying they have uh, great pastries is a high compliment, so... Uh, yeah. that, that's great. Now, now I'm now I'm hungry. <laughs> uh, safe travels. Uh, we'll see you uh, in June in Kyoto. See you in June in Kyoto, and uh, it's. I hope many people will uh, join WPC 2019. Eli Pollard is the executive director of the World Parkinson Coalition, which is the organization that hosts the Triennial World Parkinson Congresses, and she's been there since the inception. In 2004. I was employee number one, sort of ground zero, and I took this task on. I was super excited at the time. I mean, I'd been in, invited to interview to help launch this thing they were calling the World Parkinson Congresses, which of course didn't exist at the time. And it seemed really exciting. I probably had not enough knowledge about what I was really getting into when I accepted <laughs> the position, even when I applied for the position. But I loved the idea of building something from nothing. And it just seemed like a very exciting place to be. And I was there at the right time, right place, right time. And here we are, uh, not years or months away, but a matter of days away from all of us converging <laughs> in Kyoto for the fifth <laughs> World Parkinson Congress. Eli, how are you feeling? 
Well, I'm feeling pretty good. It's really exciting to take this Congress to uh, to Asia. I mean, Japan in particular. You know, we've had it in Europe and in North America, and of course, it's always exciting wherever we host it. But to take it to a part of the world where we've not been, and to a part of the world where the conversation about Parkinson's is different from what's happening in Europe and North America, it's exciting because I think we're going to open open um, some eyes. I think we're going to open some minds. I think we're going to have an impact that I am hoping will be pretty profound, both on the health professionals who will see a lot of advocates, patient advocates from around the world flying into Japan, speaking on the stage, engaging as an equal, as equals, you know, at roundtables and panels and discussions. That I think will be really eye-opening for health professionals and researchers in Japan and other parts of Asia who attend. That's not typical in Asia. And I also think it'll be really exciting, inspirational to leave that sort of image with all these patient advocates in Japan who often don't really talk about their Parkinson's because it's still a bit of a taboo illness to have Parkinson's. And so they're not really open with it. When they see these people on the stage, we have a lot of young patient advocates coming to speak. And I think that's going to be pretty profound for, for, for both the patients and the um, researchers in Japan. Well, and as we've been learning through the podcast, the, the cultural differences are great, and there's a lot of family honor at stake when you're talking about disease and whatnot. And so I think that's holding back a lot of people from being so forthright in Asia about uh, their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. What do you think the folks coming into Japan will, will find out about what's happening and how Japan is treating Parkinson's? That is a very good question. Well, I think what's one of the really exciting things about Japan being a host for the WPC is that they're doing incredibly innovative research in Japan, stuff that's not being done in other countries. And that's really exciting. They are leading right now one of the most, I think, exciting research projects right in Kyoto at Kyoto University. Um, Two of the doctors who are on the project are both our committee members. Dr. Ryosuke Takahashi is our local organizing uh, chair, co-chair, and then Dr. Jun Takahashi is a member of our program committee. And I think what's exciting is that there's there's just stuff being done that may not be happening in other parts of the world. And I think that's really exciting. And we have an opportunity to hear from both of those doctors in multiple you know ways during the program. And then we also have this incredible um, opportunity to hear from Nobel laureate Dr. Shinya Yamanaka, who did his work on iPS cells in Parkinson's. And uh, I think that that's, I think, one of the really exciting things is that, you know, people coming in from outside of Japan, it's not easy to access any researchers anywhere, really, unless you're in the same, you know, really at the same venue. But to be able to access some of these Japanese leaders who they may very rarely, if ever, cross paths with, I think that's pretty exciting. That's that's really cool. But it's interesting, you have eight types of sessions, uh, including some parallel sessions. So there is a lot going on. When we talked to Dr. Stossel in episode one of our podcast, Previewing the World Parkinson Congress, he talked about how he likes the hot topics because it allows them to bring up things that maybe a year ago weren't on the front burner and now people are talking about. Yeah. So the hot topics, just to explain to people, are talks that we select from the posters. So people submit abstracts for poster presentations, and we have around 600 of those, literally for people who've never been to a Congress. This is a 
an actual poster, a paper poster that outlines somebody's research project from conception to their actual work to the outcomes. And they're all, they cover all sorts of topics, everything from topics of care issues to sleep and Parkinson's to basic science to genetics to all sorts of topics. We drill down to just the top 12 posters. And there are four presenters, and it's a bit of it's like ten minutes, right? They get their little TED talk, like you know, ten mm-hmm. minutes. So you go to tell us what you're doing and show us your slides. And for some of these people, these junior, a lot of them are junior researchers. It's the first time they've ever presented. That's cool. Well, we're looking forward to that. How many people are you expecting at the conference? A little over 3,000. It's actually going to be around the same size as it was in Montreal. I think that 3,200, 3,300 is kind of a nice number. It means everyone can get into sessions they want to get into. People won't have to stand in the back of the room. They'll actually be able to sit. Is there something you have to do to claim a seat for a particular workshop or discussion or roundtable? No. I mean, the sessions, it's really just go to the room. I think the only one that has been challenging in the past are the roundtables. So the roundtables happen every afternoon. We have two sessions. One is the early afternoon and then later afternoon. And the roundtables are really actually not round. They're actually rectangular in Japan, but they're small (laughs) groups. They're small groups of around 12 people. And so those could be hard. If there's a specific roundtable you really want, then you would want to get to the room early to just sit down and claim a seat. There shouldn't be issues getting seats anywhere else. I think what we do with the roundtables, and I think this is one thing that makes the WPC so exciting and personal, really, is that we invite almost we invite a huge number of the presenters, probably almost half of the presenters, to also host a roundtable. So if you see someone presenting in a in um, the plenary in the morning, and it's hard to maybe ask a question in the plenary. There's so many people, right? Thousands of people sitting and watching. You might not even get your question answered, or you might not be able to even ask it. There might not be enough time. So all of those presenters, uh, almost all of those presenters, are then asked to participate in other activities. Either they chair another session or they host a roundtable. And the roundtable is great. So you can sort of track people. Even in the program, we tell you, you can use it on the mobile app to figure out where where are all the places this person's presenting. Or even in the final program, we list out, you know, all the presenters' names and then the pages where you can find them. So you can sort of track someone if and stalk them if you really <laughs> want to hear them talk a little more about the things they talk about and, and if you have questions. Well, and if you're bold enough through the app, you can communicate with them too. Absolutely. Totally. You can you can contact them right through the mobile app and ask if you can sit down and have a coffee with them at the coffee break and talk to them. Are you guys videotaping or live streaming any sessions for the people that can't make it to Japan? It's a good question. Right now, we do not have live streaming planned, and it really honestly just comes down to cost. Uh, we don't have a sponsor for the live streaming, and that's where we, you know, as you can imagine, fundraising is always uh, one of the biggest challenges we face. Mm-hmm. But we do plan to tape some of the sessions, and then what we would do afterward is just make those taped sessions available. They just won't, it just won't be live streamed. Right. And the taped sessions would really probably only be in the main hall, so the plenary talks, the hot topics, the plenary talks, and some of the special lectures. And so we did, we've done that before, where we taped them, and then afterward we made them available for people so that is more um cost effective since since broad you know uh, broadcasting things live does require uh, a significant amount of financial support which yes, it does. we weren't able we weren't able to get this time so it, it's unfortunate but it's it's how it works and we will be recording a couple of podcasts through the uh, through the sessions so over the course of the four days maybe two or three podcasts will be posted so people can get updated on what's going on um can you talk about some of the resources and activities that will be there that people may not be aware of or, or that they should seek out uh, and take advantage of? 
the biggest things I like to recommend people really check out is everything that falls under, we call it wellness way. So wellness way is multiple rooms Mm -hmm. where people can participate depending on who they are and what their interests are. And within wellness way, the, probably the most popular thing is the renewal room. The renewal room has its own schedule. It's already posted on the website. It's on the mobile app and that renewal room has fitness or exercise classes basically from eight o'clock in the morning until five o'clock. And you could try out Tai Chi, boxing, voice classes, dancing, uh, a number of things, actually all kinds of dancing. And that room will be fine and obviously uplifting and energetic. And so anyone who wants to go in there can participate. Um, and you would just go look at the schedule in the program and you can show up uh, when you're, when the, when the session's running. So that's the renewal room. The other one is our care partner lounge. The room is open for care partners all throughout the day from nine to five, just to sit down, have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, relax, talk to some other care partners. It's open to English speakers and Japanese speakers, and we'll have both staff, uh, people speaking different languages in the room. So even if there's nothing going on in the room, care partners can still go sit in the room if they want to just go sit down. And so there will be organized talks like roundtable discussions around specific issues that caregivers or care partners might be experiencing, things they want to share. And there'll be some of those will be done in English and some in Japanese. So that's the care partner lounge. And then the other parts of the wellness way, super fun, just always to let people know we have a massage and Reiki room. People can get a, Hey, I know then we have like 30 volunteer massage therapists and Reiki masters there to just give, you know, 15 minute sort of massage. Massage, Reiki, all throughout the days of the Congress. You just have to sign up for a time slot. We have a quiet room. So if people are feeling really jet lagged and just need to lay down for half an hour or an hour, they actually will have futons in that room and tables. You just sit down, take your medication, be quiet for just a minute if you need that. And then the newest part of the Wellness Way, which I'm kind of excited about, even though it's not my sort of thing, I have to give it a hand, is we have. Uh, we have a table tennis room Yay, for people who just bomb. want to play table tennis. <laughs> I always want people to make sure they take advantage of Wellness Way because it's so wonderful and it's a great complement to the scientific sessions. And then the only other thing, going back to your question later about what people should pay attention to, is in the exhibit hall, we do have a clinical research village. And this is a village that's been sponsored by the Michael J. Fox Foundation and with in-kind support from the Cure Parkinson Trust who helped put the whole program together. It is a space for just people to learn about clinical research, okay. clinical trials, what you should ask if you want to engage in a clinical trial, what are your rights as a participant in a clinical trial, what you need to know before you sign on the dotted line. That's a great space and it'll be open all the hours that the exhibit hall is open so people can stop in there anytime. And on the website, site wpc2019.org there's lots of information including uh there's details on the choir and the book nook and the art walk and there's also video competition there's so much going on eli (laughs) Uh, what are the most frequent questions you receive Hmm. um questions about the sessions are the sessions really open for everybody are they accessible uh, yes, totally accessible. Sessions are open for everyone. I do recommend when you see the actual program and you download the PDF file or you get your print copy of the program, what you'll see are icons on the bottom of the page. And those little icons will tell you if a session is basic science, clinical science, or care. And then they also tell you the level of the session. Is it highly technical, moderately technical, or totally crosstalk, which means anyone should be able to access it. It's important for people to know that you can go to any session you want to attend. But 
If you are not a scientist and you want to go to the highly technical basic science session, you just have to realize that that's a session that they're really talking about science at a high level. And this is part of the reason we do this is because if we didn't have sessions that were at the higher level for scientists, it would be hard for us to attract scientists to the Congress. They really right. need to come to be able to learn from their peers. So this is how we sort of over the years have evolved the Congress. It's really powerful when you're in a session and you've got a neuroscientist next to a person with Parkinson's, next to a physical therapist, next to a care partner, and then they open up for questions and each of those people ask a question, a totally different question, mm -hmm. because they have a different perspective on sure. that topic. Any last words for the folks that are Set, getting packing up right now, getting ready to travel to Osaka to land there and take the train to Kyoto. What, what's your advice? <laughs> My biggest advice is double check your passport. Make sure you have at least six months left on your passport to travel. Um, take time. I think when people come to Kyoto, if you've never been to Japan, it can be overwhelming, like any travel. Explore that first day or two. Try to get on the subway. See what it looks like to get a ticket for the subway. And um, drink a lot of water. And that's important. I think sometimes people get so overwhelmed with travel and the Congress, they forget to take care of themselves. Make sure you drink water, a lot of water. And my last request is that if you're traveling and you have Parkinson's, that you please bring at least double your medications. Um, you know, sometimes crazy things happen. Um, you know, a number of years ago, a volcano erupted in Iceland and people couldn't fly anywhere for like a week. You can't predict that, right? <laughs> and yeah, and so we can predict that sort of stuff, sure. And so I remember I was in Toronto at the time, and I had a lot of people around me from Europe who couldn't fly home to Europe. Um, those who had medications had problems because they couldn't get their medications in Canada. And mm -hmm. so, and even if you could get it, it's a different, slightly different formulation, right. maybe a different dosage. So. And we always tell people to bring three times the medication just because if a volcano goes off and you can't get home for a week, you need to have extra meds with you. And if you can bring more than twice just to bring a third, just, just to be safe. But I think for anyone traveling with Parkinson's, that's probably my number one uh, request is that you please bring extra medication with you because the world is unpredictable. Well, Eli, on behalf of all of us attending, thank you for all the work that you and your team have put into making this an amazing event. We're all very excited to be there, and uh, we, we it wouldn't happen without you. So uh, just thanks for everything you do. Thanks so much, Larry. I really look forward to seeing you in Kyoto. Each episode of WPC 2019, I have been chatting with James Heron, the executive director of the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center, to help us prepare for Kyoto with language lessons and cultural insights. Now, usually, we start with a word or a phrase of the week, but since this is our last chat, James, let's just race through a bunch of leftover items that you've yet to impart. There's so many little tiny things that um, come to mind. Uh, you know, I think when you, whenever you're dealing across cultures, one of them is is I always tell people, be careful with when the, with your use of language. Um, you know, often when you're dealing with uh, really anyone uh, who's dealing in their second language, but often in Japan, is to, to be careful of uh, using idioms. Using idiomatic expressions, you know, which are expressions essentially that, that we understand through cultural context, but actually the, it doesn't actual, the meaning is different from what we're actually saying. So often, again, we use things like uh, hit one out of the park or to, uh, you know, someone to be a little bit off base. Break a leg, a dime a dozen, a blessing in disguise, bite the bullet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, because 
again, people will often be looking at sort of the literal meaning of words. So you have to take that into account, you know, um, because um, obviously without that without that cultural background, uh, it's it's very easy to have misunderstandings that way. I can imagine. You want me to bite a bullet? What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, or another, another interesting one is to say, um, you know, to be pulling your leg. Oh, yeah. Uh, because actually, if you were to say that to someone in Japan um, and someone was to uh, to to translate that, a translator was to translate it directly, um, that would mean essentially there, there is an expression in Japanese, which is ashio hipparu, which means yeah, to pull someone's leg, which actually means to purposefully hold someone back to make them fail, almost to sabotage someone. So I said, it's, uh, it's a, there's a little bit of a minefield there. So probably say what you need to say in the most straightforward way, um, and, and you can't go wrong. All right. Um, you had mentioned to me that I should buy a bunch of new socks. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I've, I've only be through my own experience of, of embarrassing myself. Um, you know, you'll often find yourself in Japan, particularly if you're in any kind of a traditional setting, having to remove your shoes. Um, and obviously, uh, the hole that I have in my sock right now that's hidden. <laughs> I, my loafers is going to be um, on public display um, if I find myself uh, in Japan having to take my shoes off, perhaps in a very um, in a very formal uh, sort of a setting. So uh, I always say, yeah, um, make sure your your socks are uh, you don't have any holes in them, or else um, or they're they're going to be uh, they're going to be on public uh, they're going to be out there for for public scrutiny. So so speaking of socks, like right now I've got socks on. They're black socks, but they have bacon all over them. Like I've got fun socks. Is that okay? Oh, I think yeah, I think that's that's fine. You know, it's um, it's always something worth talking about. I mean, obviously, maybe in a if you're going in a very very formal business meeting, you might want to uh, do go with something a little more sober. Sure. But um, but I think you know for for the reason that most people are going to Japan, it's you know it's to make it's 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 all about friendship, and uh, so I think uh, you know I wouldn't worry about that level of formality. Okay, uh, if I'm if I'm going to be riding the, the bus or the train uh, repeatedly uh, over the course of a week, is there mm-hmm. like a pass I can buy, uh, or, or like that's multiple use, or do I have to buy a single pass every time? No, there's um. I think I think earlier I, I mentioned there's there's these sort of um, uh, prepaid credit cards, Suica or Pasmo, where. Essentially, you can buy this card that will work not only on any train or any bus you get on, but you can use it on, you can use it in convenience stores. You could use it in a taxi. They're uh, they're ex- they're very very handy. So you know, rather than running around to you know trying to find a um, trying to find something very specific to public trans. Uh, transport, I would just buy one of those sort of all-purpose passes. And, you can use that for anything. And, and again, where do we find those? Actually, probably the best place to buy them is at uh, at train stations. Okay, but uh, you know, and once you're in a Japan, you know, train stations are everywhere, so uh, it, it wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be very difficult to find. And most of those uh, train station vending machines will have a button, uh, and you push it, and it'll speak to you entirely in English and oh, great. give you everything you need. Yeah, perfect. Uh, let's get into some of the uh, more uh, controversial things. Uh, in America, we've got the middle finger. What's the equivalent in uh, Japan? So I don't do it by accident. Uh, 
you know, I don't think there's anything that's that specific. Um, although the Japanese will sometimes use the middle finger themselves, but it's just for pointing. So if someone uh, if someone appears to be giving you the middle finger in, in Japan, um, there's no hidden meaning in that. It's just uh, it's just a pointer. All right. Is there a good swear word we should know? A swear word? Um, you know, Japan doesn't have a. Japan has some dirty words that that are used to describe, you know, uh, bodily functions or sexual functions, mm-hmm. but they're not often used as swear words. Uh, often, disrespect in Japan is shown by the way you say things, but probably the all-purpose swear word is the word baka, which means foolish. Okay. But I guess depending on the... the uh, how it's used and the amount of anger it can be it can be dialed up or dialed down but uh it's not it's not an expression that uh that uh you i imagine you'll need to use but no but, but if you hear it coming at you, you <laughs> <just> in case <laughs> oh so how do you say bus and how do you say train uh bus is busive and train is den shop okay and maybe another one uh, is um Another useful one would be train station, which is Eki. Eki, okay. Yeah. And, and earlier, I think we talked about asking where the toilet was. Yes. Toire wa doko desu ka? So you can also say Eki wa doko desu ka? Where's the train station? Perfect. I think I'm ready. Oh, I hope this has been helpful. I'm, I, I'm sure, you know, everyone's going to have a wonderful experience over there. I mean, there's, I don't think there's any cul- country or culture that is is, you know, more courteous and, and more welcoming to guests and, you know, and, and probably more, more patient when, uh, when we make our full pause as well, as, as, as will always happen. And uh, I wish everyone uh, a really wonderful time. And I, I wish I was going with you. Yeah, so do we. Uh, you've been a great teacher. The, for the thousands of uh, listeners, I just want to say thanks to you for your time and, and your information and educating us. And uh, we all feel better prepared because uh, you spent the time to do so. Well, it's been, uh, it's been a wonderful experience. And thanks, thank you very much, everyone. Arigatou gozaimasu. Thank you, James. If you want to learn more Japanese vocabulary or to dive deeper into cultural information about Japan, check out Episode 7 of WPC 2019. Download it before you get on the plane. It's a 45-minute conversation with James, which should give you a solid base before landing in Japan. If you're not going to Japan, don't worry. I think I've got you covered. While in Kyoto at the World Parkinson Congress, we will release at least two, probably three podcasts between June 4th and 7th. And uh, we will try our best to give you the the cultural experience and the Parkinson's experience and introduce you to some of the great people on hand uh, for this terrific event. From Curious Cast and the World Parkinson Coalition, this is WPC 2019. Special thanks to Etienne Hirsch and Eli Pollard, who served the Parkinson's community, and James Heron, who joined us today and in each episode of the WPC 2019 podcast. 
Visit WPC2019.org to learn about the upcoming Fifth World Parkinson Congress, a global Parkinson's event that opens its doors to all members of the Parkinson's community, including those living with the disease. Follow WPC on Twitter at World PD Congress. If you're headed over to Kyoto, don't forget to download the app. Customize it, plan your schedule, and instant message other participants like me. If you'd like to help spread the word about this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free. Search for WPC 2019 and When Life Gives You Parkinson's. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca and WPC2019.org. Connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up at Parkinson's Pod. Email is parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. WPC 2019 is written and produced by me, Larry Gifford. Dila Velazquez is our story producer and sound design by Rob Johnston. I look forward to finally meeting you in Kyoto. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.